This is Yudaha Kohen, Vision Movement, Vision Magazine, and you are listening to the Next Stage Podcast. I'm recording this from New York City, and uh, I don't know if listeners know this, but despite the fact that the Jewish people have come back to our land and have achieved uh, political independence and are really in the process of rebuilding a Hebrew civilization in the modern age, there are still quite a number of Jews who've, by choice, decided to remain in exile. And, uh, you know, as I travel around the United States and meet some of these Jews, I thought it would be worthwhile to share their perspectives and maybe gain a glimpse into the organized Jewish community in the United States. So I asked a friend, uh, Zach Schaefer, who's been very involved in Jewish nonprofit organizations in the New York area and serves as an advisor and a consultant uh, and the executive director of his own organization. Uh, so I asked Zach to join me on the show to offer us some insights into how the American Jewish community, the organized American Jewish community, sees itself, sees its relationship to what's going on in our country, and uh, sees its place, I guess, in Jewish history or broader human history. Zach, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It is great to be here with you, Yehuda. All right, so Zach, you've had a little bit of experience, or I'd say a lot for your age. You're what, 27? 27. For a 27-year-old, I think you've had quite a bit of experience in the professional Jewish nonprofit world. Um, so can you share a little bit about yourself with our listeners, where you come from, what you've done, and what you do? Yeah, I live in Brooklyn, New York. I've been in New York for five or six years now. Uh, for the past three years, I've been running a Jewish nonprofit in the city that works with younger folks in their 20s, 30s, early 40s in the Jewish community, helping them to get involved on the boards of other Jewish nonprofits. Uh -huh. And before that, I did a lot of work in the Israel space and the Zionism space, uh, helping create space for conversation and relationships within the American Jewish community and between the American Jewish community and other communities. So I've done a lot of work with the Christian community from progressive mainline Protestants to right-wing evangelicals and a lot of work across differences uh, within the American Jewish community as well. And a lot of what I do is to try to depolarize our community and the, the conversations we're having around really intense topics. Most, most frequently the, the work I'm doing is around Israel-Palestine or Zionism. Okay. And in your opinion, how are those issues seen differently by Jews in New York, for example, you know, versus Jews in the land of Israel? It's been said before, but Judaism and of course Zionism for many diaspora Jews, especially in America, is a choice or an option. Uh, it's something you opt into, not something you opt out of. And mm -hmm. I think for historically speaking, Zionism was an assumed posture of diaspora Jews. Um, from the creation of the State of Israel, of course, following the Holocaust, uh, for many reasons. A lot of it was trauma-informed and the lived experience of Jews at that time um, and the experience of an Israel at threat really made, made it clear that one supported the State of Israel or was a Zionist. Um, that's just not true today with this next generation of Jews. Um, and that assumption is no longer, can no longer be made. So for a lot of young Jews today, the question isn't why not be a Zionist or why not be Jewish, but it's why be a Zionist, why be Jewish? And I think that's what our generation's grappling with. And that's where a lot of the tension comes in with older generations 
because you know my grandparents would have just assumed of of course you're a zionist of course you want to be jewish i don't need to ask why i don't need to articulate a, a compelling reason for you to be zionist or jewish because you will be because i was and my parents were and this is what it means to be a jew um and that was true for an extent to an extent with my parents generation i, I don't think it's true for many people my age today well i think a lot of that has to do with the fact that your grandparents' generation was a generation in which Zionism as an ideology was actually responding to answering a very pressing Jewish need, meaning there were a set of challenges that the Jewish people had when Zionism came along. And I'd say Zionism came along in the 1880s and probably lasted until about 1967. And, and that might explain why for your grandparents it was so obvious and for your parents it was halfway obvious. Uh, but for your generation, it's so much less obvious because Zionism no longer really addresses a need that young Jews are confronted with. You know, the, the challenges that young Jews are confronted with today are not challenges that Zionism is going to solve. Zionism already solved a set of Jewish challenges, might have created a mess in the process, but definitely, for the most part, solved a lot of the issues it had been created to solve. I would argue Zionism ended in 1967 and that since 1967, the Jewish people have been ready for a new Jewish liberation movement, a new Jewish liberation-ism that can uh, address the challenges of this generation, some of which were created by Zionism. Meaning I think that whatever comes after Zionism, this new Jewish liberation ideology needs to really protect Zionism's positive goals while at the same time, cleaning up its mess, addressing its flaws. And I think that for a lot of young Jews, probably especially in the diaspora, there's a really a lot more emphasis on the flaws, on the mess that Zionism created, uh, and less appreciation for the extent to which Zionism radically improved the standing of the Jewish people more broadly. I, I think it's, I, I agree with you. I think it's comes down to, I think, definitions and, and terms to an extent. Um, if the problem Zionism sought to solve was the existential helplessness of the Jewish people, um, was the lack of a certainty that in 20 or 30 years there would be a critical mass of Jews on this planet, then Zionism has certainly succeeded. It is It has succeeded as an insurance policy to ensure the survival of the Jewish people from genocide, ethnic cleansing, dislocation, or even assimilation. So I, I think on that level, Zionism has been a wildly successful liberation movement that you know arguably hasn't been paralleled by any other liberation movement in thousands of years. Um, that being said, today, right, it depends what we want to look at Zionism and the state of Israel as. And I would argue one of the challenges that Zionism created actually was how much of an identity it has become for diaspora Jews. I know many Jews in America, many young Jews in America who don't study Torah, don't keep Shabbos, don't keep kosher, um, but identify very proudly and strongly as a Jew but I would argue that their entire manifestation of their Judaism is through Zionism in support of Israel. And that's their only connection to their Jewish identity is through Zionism and the state of Israel and staffing birthright trips and Israeli culture and food and music and bars. And what, what, what we're facing now is this challenge where Zionism really was the anchor and the civic religion of American Jewry 
for the past 50 years. And that's crumbling before our eyes in this generation. And there's this big divide. And I think what a diaspora Jewry has to reckon with today outside of, of the more orthodox or traditional streams, or even what maybe more purely in Ashkenazi culture is what it means to be a Jew if your Judaism isn't grounded in Zionism today. And I think that's actually one of the one of the primary challenges for for young Jews today and for the Jewish community in the diaspora. And I'll I'll even just add to that that Zionism 50 years ago was Zionism of dreams, right? It, it was an aspirational Zionism. It was a Zionism that was still pulling drowning Jews out of lifeboats, and that was you know in the words of Jacob Klatskin, an aspiration toward morality and beauty. Whereas today, many young Jews are wrestling with the reality of Zionism, those consequences that you mentioned of Zionism, where we're no longer perceived or in reality drowning, right? We got out of the water, we're in our lifeboats and we're looking at the mess that Zionism has left behind. We're now spending time and seeing social media posts about life in the West Bank in Gaza. Um, and that sort of fragile image of Zionism as a dream is clashing with this reality uh, and we're not able to wrestle with it. So many of us are walking away. Right. So the question I would ask, well, first of all, when you use the word Zionism, uh, the way you described, especially diaspora Jews and their Zionism, would you say that that's a synonym for peoplehood or national consciousness or do you distinguish? Um, Zionism is so ill-defined in our community. Right. Like the, the token is right. Support for national determination or sovereignty of the Jewish people in our homeland. Um, and I think it, it comes from a in a, a nationalistic or peoplehood impulse. Um, and it often exists outside of, you know, Judaism as a religion or even Torah or, or Jewish faith or culture as, as it might be defined otherwise. I think you're you're raising some very interesting questions and uh, and you're articulating the challenges confronting a lot of diaspora Jews, especially your generation of diaspora Jews very well. Uh, I mean, for me, I think the focus for all Jews, whether in Israel or in the diaspora, should really be on trying to figure out what are the goals of Jewish history? Like, what is the mission of the Jewish people in human history? What objectives have already been achieved? I think that we can say the Zionist movement did achieve a number of objectives that have been on our minds for thousands of years, meaning things that we've been aspiring towards for thousands of years, the Zionist movement did actually accomplish. But we have to ask what's left to accomplish. Like, what are the objectives of this chapter of Jewish history, regardless of where we're living? And, you know, how do we achieve those? So did you see that conversation taking place anywhere? Like, in, I mean, I know at the vision movement, we focus on that conversation almost exclusively. But beyond that movement, do you see anyone really having those kinds of conversations, asking what are the goals of Jewish history? What's already been achieved? what's left to accomplish, and how can we be characters in the story of accomplishing those goals? I think it's a conversation that needs to happen more. Mm -hmm. um, I'm inspired by some leaders. I, I don't know if you're familiar with the Judaism Unbound group, um, Lex Rothberg and, and Daniel Liebenson. I think they have a lot of conversations and bring in a lot of sort of institutional and grassroots thought leaders in America to discuss the evolution Judaism is undergoing today, right? Mm -hmm. This shift perhaps from rabbinic Judaism towards another manifestation of what it means to be Jewish. And I think we're living in this moment that is truly seismic in Jewish history, where this could be one of those monumental shifts. But I'm not sure that we ask 
the question you're asking, which is to what end? Why? What is this goal? What it is? What is it rooted in? I hear a lot of people discussing the phenomenon, uh, but not excavating the the purpose or the impulse to it. Um, and I, I think maybe the question that needs to be answered uh, is is inherent in in what Judaism has always offered. And right now we're facing a moment of of assimilation, which is what diaspora Jews have always faced. And, and we're living in a moment of, of universalist impulses um, where a lot of diaspora Jews see the threat of nationalism. They see the harms of tribalism and parochialism. And there's a distaste toward that. Uh, and I think what Judaism offers, has always offered, is the nexus between universalism and particularism, right? It, it, it's always articulated something beautiful about that. And I think Yehuda, one of one of the, the insights that I think you bring through your work that I'd, I'd love for you to, to jump into is how we can articulate a Judaism today that preserves what is particular about our people and our faith and our community while leaving room for that universal sensitivity. And, mm -hmm. and I don't know if if we're asking that question, let alone answering it today. Right. I think that is the crucial question. Uh, you know, I'm very much a, a student of Rav Kook, and uh, we're actually recording this. This is going to air in the future, but we are recording this interview on the 3rd of Elul, which happens to be the Yom B'tira, the yard site of uh, Rav Kook, Rav Avram Yitzchak HaKohen Kook, the first uh, chief rabbi of Palestine in the modern age. And, and really, I would say the Admor of Klal Yisrael, like really the, the the certainly the Torah giant of his generation, but I might even argue the Torah giant of most generations. And he has an essay that I often like to quote when having this conversation. It's in Orot chapter 18, where he basically uh, writes that when the Jewish people begins to come back to life, we come back to our land, we're kind of moving from a gas form to a solid form again. And he says there's three forces that begin to emerge. The Kodesh, the, um, I guess, the holy, the Torah force, the uh, nationalist force, and the universalist force. Uh, and he says all three of these are equally valid and legitimate expressions of Jewish identity. And each of these are also equally crucial components uh, for Israel to be able to fulfill our mission in history. But, he says, these three forces need to really develop independently. They can't come together too early uh, or else they're going to water each other down. But eventually they do need to all come together. They need to create this kind of super camp that's the full expression of all three. And Rav Kook is writing this probably in the 1920s or 30s because uh, he left the world in, in 1935, 86 years ago, 86 years ago today. Uh, and when he was writing this, I think the holy camp, the Torah camp, was the Haredi world. Um, the nationalist camp were the Zionists, all the way from you know the labor Zionists to the revisionist Zionists. And the universalist camp were the Marxists and the Bundists and um, you know Martin Buber, perhaps, you know, Brit Shalom, movements like that. And so Rav Kook says that these three need to really develop independently, but ultimately they have to come together. And, you know, at this time when Rav Kook is, is writing this, there was an attempt to combine two of these forces. It was called religious Zionism, 
But really, it was, as Rav Kook warned, it was a watered-down version of both. It was less religious than the Haredim and less nationalist than even the labor Zionists. And it wasn't really until after the Six-Day War in 1967 that a new kind of national religious camp emerged that was arguably more Torani than the Haredim and certainly more nationalist than even Likud. And that's the camp that I'm very much a part of in Israel. That's a sector of Israeli society where I feel most at home. I view it as a as a vanguard with a lot of revolutionary potential. But at the same time, it's clearly missing the universalism or hasn't figured out how to kind of transition to universalism, how to make that leap. And a lot of the work that we do in the vision movement is trying to figure out how to incorporate the universalism in a way that will ultimately be the full expression of all three forces. So I think that if we're mission-oriented, and Rav Kook, of course, was very mission-oriented in his Torah, the context of Rav Kook's teachings are really the historic mission of the children of Israel. Uh, so if we have a clear understanding of that mission, and we know that it's a universalist mission, ultimately it's it's a mission, I, I would argue it's, you know, part of it is leading humanity into a post-capitalist world, really changing the way uh, the world is structured, the way humans relate to one another, uh, bringing all of humanity to the awareness that we're really part of one organic whole, that we're not separate from each other, that we're really uh, united at the source. Uh, that has to be achieved through the Jewish people being strong and healthy in our land. So if we look at the national, meaning we, we only have a national struggle because it was taken away from us. Meaning if we started this conversation at a moment when the Jewish people were strong and secure in our own land, then we could just begin with, okay, what's our universal mission? But because we had to start from like below zero, we had to come back from the dead and we had to, you know, conquer our land again from the British Empire and revive our ancient language, which are incredibly, you know, revolutionary achievements, but they're complicated. We're unique in history. You know, most people who look at the Jewish people don't really understand us because our story really is so unique and we don't fit into any one box. But for me, what I think really makes sense is to understand the nationalism, for lack of a better word, as necessary in order for us to be able to achieve our universalist goal. That ultimately the goal of our people is a very universalist one, but it can only be achieved by us being capable of achieving it. And for us to be capable of achieving it, we need to be strong and secure and in our land and, you know, know ourselves, be very secure and deeply rooted in our own identity and our own purpose in history. And I really appreciate that. And, and I think that, I mean, to, to translate that to a American Jewish educational paradigm, let's say, Mm -hmm. There's a lot of attempts at Kiruv in Amer you know, in American Jewish life. There's a lot of like traditional Orthodox Jewish institutions trying to bring more Jews into a more observant fold. And I think a transition that I've started to see, uh, Esha Torah, for example, I think is is going through this transition, is to change the goal from I we want to educate young Jews to be this kind of Jewish or this kind of Orthodox to we want young Jews to live Torah informed and inspired lives. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is a really good first step in trying to meet those that particularist with that universalist impulse in American Jewry. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think that's some of what you're what you're doing as well. And, and the truth is that for young Jews today, 
there, there are these conflicting yearnings for universalism and nationalism or cosmopolitanism and tribalism. But at the end of the day, young Jews are going to choose liberalism over Zionism. They're going to choose universalism over particularism um, or nationalism. And, and I think what Rav Cook did beautifully was, was work to marry those two in a contemporary sense. Um, and, I, and I think that's, that is truly just what's missing today. Right, but I think that really that tension has existed within our people for thousands of years, really. And and I imagine that, uh, just a caveat to what you just pointed out, um, when things are good, when we feel secure, uh, whether justifiably or not, but when Jews, especially diaspora Jews, feel secure, universalism might win out over particularism. But the moment we feel threatened, like legit threatened, I think you find that the pendulum swings the other way. And that's really how Zionism became so powerful a force in the Jewish world, because the Jewish people felt increasingly threatened. And Zionism really, I, I think it was really the years between the Holocaust and the Six-Day War where Zionism was probably most powerful in the consciousness of Jews throughout the world because it had been so vindicated uh, by world events. So I think it really depends on the situation Jews are living in. And often, you know, what I find is, uh, whether we're talking about Israelis or we're talking about, you know, Jews on university campuses here in the diaspora, I, I think that the extent to which universalism or liberalism wins out over nationalism or particularism really depends on how secure a Jew feels as a Jew or connected a Jew feels as a Jew. Meaning Jews who really experience themselves as oppressed on some level. And maybe you in, in the United States, you might find this more with Jews who more recently came from the former Soviet Union or, or Iran or Israelis or you know other places. Um, Jews who, who feel themselves more threatened or oppressed or marginalized as Jews tend to be more particularist and nationalist. And, and Jews who really do experience themselves as privileged white Americans that have been you know, included in mainstream American society, at least for a number of decades now, I think for them, you know, liberalism and universalism would probably win out. So it really depends, I think, on the historical context, uh, how we're being treated and how any given Jew maybe experiences himself and experiences, you know, how he's treated as a Jew uh, in society. But your larger point, I think, is correct. I mean, the question there, this has been a pattern throughout Jewish history for millennia. And I'm not so naive or arrogant to believe that the existential condition of the Jewish people has been solved for, that we do not face threats, that we are safe, right? That that in 100 or 200 years, uh, I can speak with certainty that we will be here and stronger and larger and more rooted than we are today. Um, I still don't feel confident that I can say that. Yet still, the, the condition of the Jewish people today is more secure than it's been in 2000 years, um, both in America, I would argue, and of course with Israel. So if we're claiming that in times of safety and security, we may become less connected to our Judaism or our identity, and in times of crisis, we become more connected, which is of course the human condition, then we're left I, then we may be left waiting for longer than we've ever had to wait before for that crisis to emerge. And does that then mean that Jewish continuity, the Jewish future is dependent on persecution 
on crisis, on a lack of safety? Do we have to pray that we're never so safe that we assimilate and give up our Judaism because that's what happens when there is safety? So I, I, I'm always sort of concerned to define Judaism as a response to persecution or to rely on a crisis or on, on insecurity to foment a Jewish identity. And I'm also conscious that moral aside that we're living in a reality where there are less crises today that the Jewish people are facing, at least in America, the largest diaspora community, uh, than there were 100 years ago or 500 years ago. And even in the midst of some of those major crises, there were still, of course, Jews, Zionist, proto-Zionist, non or anti-Zionist, um, who still found safety and security in diaspora or exile. Um, Emma Lazarus wrote in I, her poem, The New Year was published in 5643, which was I think only a couple years after the pogroms of 1881. And in that poem, she writes of the two dividing streams, one rolling towards Homewood to its ancient source, of course, Israel, and one rushing sunward with fresh will and new heart. By each the truth is spread, the law unfurled. Each soul contains the nation's force, right? Here she is two years following some of the most dramatic pogroms the Jewish people had faced uh, in, in memory. Uh, and she's still validating that diaspora existence and the safety and future uh, that America beholds. So what, is, what does that mean for us then if, if, if we're sort of relying on crisis to secure that identity? Very interesting point and very interesting observations, but I think that the goal should never be to rely on crises. The goal should be to have a deeply rooted enough Jewish identity that we don't need those crises. I think mm. part of the problem is, let's say Zionism, uh, one of the major flaws I see with Zionism is that it relates to the Jewish people as an object with a problem. And as long as we're an object with a problem, I think you're right that we need to rely on crises to a certain extent. But when we transition to seeing the Jewish people as a subject with desires, uh, then suddenly we don't need crises. And I think, you know, even in terms of my own work with Palestinians, for example, I think the reason I'm able to do it and, and engage with Palestinians and really hear their stories and understand their experiences with empathy and try to work towards actually reconciling and ending the conflict, the reason I feel I'm, I'm more able to do it than some of my neighbors, I'm, you know, as you know, a Jew living in the West Bank, uh, living for ideological reasons in the West Bank. I'm unwilling to compromise on any of our land, and I would even like to go back to Gaza and Sinai eventually, Bezat Hashem. Uh, but because I'm deeply rooted in what I understand to be the aspirations of our people for thousands of years, and because I relate to our people as a subject with desires and not an object of the problem, I can make a lot more space uh, for the other. And, uh, and I think that that's maybe the failure of Jewish education, that there was so much emphasis placed on the bad things that happened to us and, uh, and the crises, as you said, uh, that we, we didn't really educate our kids, at least, you know, the Jewish education system here in the United States doesn't really educate the kids towards what we've wanted, what we've collectively aspired towards for thousands of years, even if you go to you know, a, a Jewish day school like uh, that teaches, you know, Torah half the day and and, uh, you know, regular studies half the day. 
it's very compartmentalized it's very fragmented you know in their real life they're living the american dream they're studying to go to great universities to have you know successful lives with great professions as you know contributing members of american society and the torah is like okay so this is like the religion that's going to spice your life or whatever you'll have a kosher restaurant instead of a non-kosher restaurant and you'll have shabbat once a week but the things they learn in the torah aren't taught to them as like these are the things that we as a people have wanted for thousands of years and now we're situated in such a way where some of these are actually within reach and it's not real for them a lot of the educational work that i do with those type of kids you know students coming out of the day school system is really just trying to make it real connecting the dots for them that th this is actually a real story and you're a character in it and you're living in one of the most amazing and perhaps climactic chapters of that story and the only reason you've been chosen to live in this chapter of jewish history is because you're meant to meaningfully participate and it's an incredible opportunity i think i i think we're incredibly privileged to be chosen to come into this world in such a generation uh which is so radically different from coming into this world and being jews 100 or 200 or 500 years ago i'm so inspired by the way you you talk about the need for a, a compelling aspiration right that the jews are not a problem to be solved mm -hmm. and i think a lot of my at least education and Jewish upbringing in, in Hebrew school and elsewhere focused on threats either directly with a lot more Holocaust education than maybe substantive Jewish spiritual um, education and also just in the way we talk about Jewish continuity we don't talk about Jewish excellence and Jewish spiritual growth and you know Jewish innovation and impact. We talk about Jewish continuity, the need to survive rather than that need to thrive. Right. So I really appreciate that focus on an aspirational Judaism. And I think for me, when I look at Zionism, I my first relationship with Zionism was as a response to a problem. It was Zionism <laughs> as the insurance policy of the Jewish people, as right. the fortress behind walls. Mm -hmm. And I think I started to then study Zionist literature and move away from some of that perhaps Hasbara approach to Zionism that I had had. And I started to see Zionism as something more aspirational, right? I started to see Israel as a laboratory to put Jewish ethics and value and Torah to the test. Um, for 2000 years, we've, we've debated our values and ethics and written tomes of literature and discussed what a Jewish society and Jewish world would look like, what a Mashiach would bring to the world. And here we have agency as a people on a national, a global level to actually effectuate Jewish values and ethics, to create a Jewish society, to be a light unto the nations in a really tangible contemporary way. So when I look at Zionism, I don't look at Zionism as the creation of a Jewish state to protect us from existential insecurity. I look at that as the very first lowest bar. I really see it as as the goal of creating a thoroughly authentic Jewish society and figuring out what that means and what it should look like. And, and I actually think that that second approach is much more compelling and interesting and seductive to diaspora, to many diaspora Jews and young Jews. And I think it helps to blend some of that particular and universal. And it helps to overcome 
some of the barriers to Zionism or nationalism or Israel that, that young Jews face. So I, I really think you're onto something with your, your focus on, on that sort of aspiration or impact or outcome orientation to what it means to be Jewish today or what Zionism or Israel should be or should look like. Yeah, absolutely. We are at a moment in our story, I think, where we need to shift from this narrow Jewish nationalism to a uniquely Hebrew universalism, meaning we shouldn't look at the state of Israel as the goal of our revolution, but rather as a tool with which to achieve the goals of our revolution and to ask mm. ourselves, you know, what are we bringing to the world? Like, not just what kind of Jewish, I mean, we you're 100% right. We do need to ask ourselves, what makes a state Jewish? Like, what does a Jewish state look like, especially in the 21st century, because we haven't had self-determination for roughly 2000 years. And the last time we, we enjoyed political independence, the world was a different place. It was a completely different context. And today, like we have to figure out what makes a state Jewish in the contemporary context. But beyond that, we have to even ask ourselves, what kind of world do we want to see? Like, what do we want the world to look like? And how can the state of Israel be a tool with which to make the world what we want to see? How do we create the world we want to see through the conditions created by Zionism success? I think a meaningful example of that, that, that I know you and I discussed perhaps a few years ago that was compelling to me, was the conversation around Israel selling weapons mm -hmm. to unsavory state actors. Right. Um, and that's, for me, advocating for the Jewish state to have real Jewish compassion and ethics around what we do with power and weapons is the most Zionistic, the most Jewish conversation that we can have. And one that is deeply compelling, deeply universal, but can also be rooted in real conversations around Torah and Judaism and what our sages teach us in moments such as this. And, and I think that those are the kinds of conversations that can really begin to change our relationships to Israel and to Judaism. And, and for many young Jews today who identify as deeply Jewish, but their denomination is Zionism, right? They're not conservative, they're not orthodox, they're not reform, they're not following Torah in any meaningful way, um, religiously or secularly, their denomination is truly pro-Israel and Zionism. For them to be able to insert Jewish values and Torah into conversations around Zionism and Israel might help to begin to bridge those gaps too. Right. I think that needs to be part of the conversation. I mean, we have to ask ourselves, like, how do the values of our people, the identity of our people, the vision of our prophets and sages uh, manifest, express themselves in the modern age through us? As you said, we, we have power today for the first time in thousands of years. I mean, that's a challenge. We are so used to being powerless that coming back to our land and coming back to political independence and coming back to a situation of, of power with all the trauma, especially the trauma that Ashkenazi Jews uh, have come home with, um, but all the trauma that we've come back with and, and not yet addressing that trauma. Um, I don't think that most Israelis really experience and, and probably diaspora Jews as well, certainly the older generation of diaspora Jews. I don't think we see ourselves as 
as powerful as we really are. I don't think, it, like for example, I don't think Israelis even know what power dynamics are when we talk about mm. conflict with Palestinians. It's like an irrelevant issue. Uh, whereas for Palestinians and their supporters, it's so central. Uh, but really like from the Israeli perspective, you know, this is almost like a horizontal ethnic conflict. We happen to get the upper hand. Had we not gotten the upper hand, we'd be dead. And uh, now they're lucky we don't do to them what they would have done to us had they gotten the upper hand. Like that's basically how most Israelis see it. You know, no relation to colonial structures, power dynamics, anything. And I think also a lot of diaspora Jews, especially the older generation, even those who have some level of power or influence in society, you know, I think there's a lot of insecurity there because even though we can argue that Jews attained what I would call conditional whiteness in the United States, it's conditional. And I think a lot of Jewish organizations and prominent Jews really see themselves as being somewhat on probation. It's a good question whether or not whiteness means being admitted into the country club or being in charge of who else gets to be admitted into the country club. Meaning at the end of the day, I think the situation most Jews find themselves in in the United States is we have this conditional inclusion Things seem to be pretty good right now, but can that be taken away? And I think that uh, for a lot of Jew, uh, older Jews, especially in this country, the answer is yes. Like there is a feeling that we could lose those things. Like we've had those things before. I, I would argue anybody with really a, a broad historical context would know that we've also enjoyed uh, similar inclusions in other societies, Germany, Spain, Egypt, you know, uh, that turned out not so good for us. So I think that that shadow looms over us to a certain extent. And I think that it does play a role in the behavior and attitudes of many diaspora Jews. And I struggle with that myself. I like to think I have the historical awareness to know the pattern of Jewish history and how cyclical our oppression is, right? Our, our oppression has never been linear, which mm. is what makes it so hard to understand through many lenses today of how systemic power operates right um so i i understand that and i have the inherited and epigenetic trauma of my ancestors but i don't have the lived experience and i struggle to know when am i being naive when am i acting in a trauma-informed way that may not actually be necessary for the reality i live in and when is my fear or anxiety truly justified and existential. So I, that's something that I, who, who feel like I have a, a hand in historical awareness and I have that trauma and I lack that lived experience. I, I myself struggle to know sort of what is real and what is not when I or society am gaslighting, uh, you know, myself about the condition of Jews today or not. So I, I don't really know how, how I should handle that or, or look at that, or if it's just safest to assume the highest level of risk because that's how one survives. I'm not sure if you have any wisdom on that. Um, I have a different perspective because I actually grew up with mostly non-Jews. Like I grew up in New York City in the 80s and 90s, you know, Irish kids, Albanian kids, Italian kids, Puerto Rican kids, black kids, Dominican kids, like, you know, from all over the world a lot of immigrants, and it, it was no secret what people thought of Jews. You know, I had a lot of friends whose fathers worked for Jews and had a lot of grievances. And I also lived in a, in a subculture where being a Jew 
was really considered a, um, a liability, a handicap. I don't know what the right word is. Meaning the same way that, that we can understand a woman, you know, has to work harder in the workplace to earn the same respect or, or the same wage as a man. In the world I grew up in, you know, for a Jew to get the same respect as a black kid or an Irish kid, he has to be more violent. And to this day, I'm discovering that a lot of the kids I grew up with were Jews. Like people were so closeted about it because it was considered such a weakness in the world I grew up in. So for me, anti-Semitism, you know, or, or Jew hatred was always was always something obvious. It was something that I just experienced all the time and had to deal with all the time. I was very open about my Jewishness. Um, I was Jewish, not in the way other people were Christian or Muslim. I was really Jewish more in the way other people were Albanian or Puerto Rican. And it was part of my ethnicity, it was part of my identity. So for me, that was like always present and my understanding of the world probably was very much forged by those experiences. Uh, but I imagine, you know, a Jew who grows up in a comfortable American suburb with other Jews, you know, going to school with other Jews, going to camp with other Jews, and uh, not really knowing people outside of that bubble uh, could very easily fall into the trap of thinking of himself as just kind of like a, you know, another white American. One of the challenges I found, I do a lot of education around Zionism and Israel across the country. And especially in, in Jewish communities and big cities, right, like the Upper West Side, I will meet with high schoolers or middle schoolers today, Gen Z, and any conversation about Zionism, there's just this response that illustrates this sort of lack of understanding and historical context that Jews have ever suffered or been unsafe. Um, or that something could happen to you today. So when I, and I think part of it is because as you said, Zionism was offered as a solution to a problem and not as an aspiration towards something greater. So when young Jews today, they understand Zionism as an answer to the problem of Jewish helplessness or insecurity. And they say, but I am neither helpless nor insecure, right. nor or any of the Jews I know in this well-to-do suburb or community of Jews that I live in, so ipso facto, Zionism and the state of Israel are irrelevant to me. It's, it's a fossil from the past. Mm -hmm. And that's why I actually wonder if we're able to shift the conversation rather than as an answer to a problem, but a, a possibility for something greater, that for those Jews who lack the historical awareness or the contemporary awareness that Jews are not necessarily safe today and won't necessarily be safe in the future, that if we can talk about it as an aspiration, that even lacking that context they may be invited into the conversation to talk about what that might look like. Um, I'm curious, I have another question for you. Sure. Zionism was often talked about by Herzl and others <clears throat> as an answer to the Jewish question or the Jewish problem. Mm -hmm. And I, I look at Zionism today and how it's talked about inside and outside of the Jewish community. And if a hundred years ago, the challenge of Zionism was the Jewish question, I feel like today the challenge of Zionism is the Palestinian question. Um, for many Jews, we we look at Israel from the diaspora and without the lived experience of Israelis and, and the context of how the situation in Israel-Palestine has turned into what it is today. And we say, if this is, if Israel has become this, right? Many young Jews look at Israel as the occupier, as the oppressor, 
um, in, in, a, in a harmful light as a military industrial complex or so forth. And they say, I thought Judaism was special. I thought Judaism was different. I thought a Jewish state would be different. But when I look at Israel today, I see that we're just like everyone else. We don't have anything special to offer. We've been oppressing another community for 50 years. If this is Zionism, I don't want any part of it. And even more so, if this is Judaism, if Israel is the manifestation of Judaism on a national level, then the Judaism has been falsified. Like the thesis of Judaism has been disproved because this is the best we could do. So I feel like in many ways, that's an approach that a lot of that, that a lot of diaspora Jews in America may take. And I wonder if if you think a that analysis that I'm, I'm saying I'm, I'm seeing is correct. And then B, if that's an approach some folks are taking, do you think that solving that Palestinian question, right? Solving that conflict that we're in right now may, may in many ways be a solution to bring Jews not only back into the fold of Zionism in Israel, but back into the fold of Judaism itself. So my short answer to your last question is yes, but not necessarily for the reasons you laid out. I, I think a lot of what you're saying is definitely true for your generation of diaspora Jews, uh, that Zionism has become less about the Jewish question and more about the Palestinian question. And, and there's also like, you know, disappointment, maybe we could say, or disappointment based on how Israel behaves or is perceived to behave, you know, in regards to Palestinians. Now, uh, I, I think for Israelis, unfortunately, Zionism is not at all about the Palestinian question. Zionism is about, you know, a barbecue and Yom Atzma'ut and reserve duty once a year. I would actually say Zionism has become the ideological paradigm of Israeli society in the way that, you know, we could say liberalism is the ideological paradigm of Western society today, or or Christianity was once the ideological paradigm of Western society. Zionism is, is kind of the dominant ideological context in which most Israelis are living, but it's not a compelling ideology that moves one to change reality. Um, mm. It moves one to participate, going to the army, you know, voting perhaps, and things of that nature, but not, you know, I'm going to change this situation. I think that it's it, look. It's important for me to look at Zionism as something that was once a compelling ideology that's no longer because it's no longer aspiring to solve anything that's that is hurting us. Meaning that it's no longer like an ideology that's aspiring to solve our problems. I think that uh, we need to create something new. And that's why I think it's so important to have this conversation. Meaning if we're going to talk about an aspirational Jewish liberation ideology today, we need to define the goals of, you know, our chapter of Jewish history, like what needs to happen. So for me, the goals of Jewish history right now that we can participate in trying to achieve are the decolonization of Jewish identity, a reconciliation with the Palestinians, so I think we definitely agree there, and freedom, independence from the United States. So Israel should be an independent country that isn't taking American weapons or American money and, and certainly doesn't see itself as an outpost of American power in the Middle East. And some of our issues, by the way, do intersect with that, meaning, um, the, like you mentioned before, the arms sales to human rights abusers. A lot of the Israeli arms sales, I'm not trying to let anybody off the hook in Israel, but when our current finance minister, our former defense minister, Avigdor Lieberman, 
was challenged uh, when he was in the defense ministry on selling weapons to human rights violators, his answer was that we follow the example of the moral nations, the ethical nations, primary among them, first among them, the United States. The United States sells weapons all over the place, including to us, including to our neighbors, including to some of our enemies. So we do it too. And I think that we really need to think about how a Jewish state should operate independently from, you know, trying to be like a Hebrew speaking America. So it's not just, you know, military or economic subjugation, but also cultural subjugation uh, that we need to break free of. So I think that's important. Uh, reconciliation with the Palestinians, as you know, I feel that that needs to come as an extension of Jewish liberation, not as a retreat from Jewish liberation. It has to really be seen as an objective that will advance us further on the path of our revolution, bring us closer to achieving the aspirations of our ancestors and achieving the vision of our prophets and sages. I think reconciliation with the Palestinians is really key there, uh, especially the Jews living in the West Bank. I think the Jews or, you know, the vanguard I spoke about earlier, those who are most fully living Jewish history, consciously living in the psychological paradigm of Jewish history, um, those Jews need to really be taking the lead in reconciliation with the Palestinians. And in terms of decolonization, I, even a lot of the words you've been using, I think need to be unpacked. Like I personally have a, a problem with the word Judaism. I, I know you've used it a lot of the show. For me, Judaism is like a social construct that's only a couple hundred years old that was meant to kind of frame our identity as a religious identity. You know, like uh, we are Germans of the Mosaic persuasion or we're Frenchmen with a religion called Judaism. And I think this social construct that we call Judaism really allows or conditions Jews, especially diaspora Jews, to see themselves as like Americans with a religion called Judaism, as opposed to being part of the Jewish people, the children of Israel. Uh, so I think that's something that we need to, uh, and even Orthodox, you know, you mentioned a couple of times, you know, the idea of Orthodox Jews or Orthodox Judaism. A, a lot of people, I think, make the mistake of thinking that, you know, the reform movement or conservative reconstruct all these denominations. And I, I think even having these denominations should be viewed as the Christianization of Jewish identity. I think in the wake of the Haskalah, in the wake of trying to see ourselves as Germans with a Jewish religion or Frenchmen with a Jewish religion, you know, the next step was really denominations. You know, the Christians have them, you know, they have uh, Catholics and Methodists and Protestants, whatever. So, you know, we can have uh, denominations too. And a lot of people make the mistake of assuming that all of those denominations are kind of fake, except for Orthodox. Like Orthodox is the real one. Orthodox is the authentic way to be a Jew. And I take issue with that because I think that while on the one hand, what we call Orthodox preserved the ritual and legal components of our identity, which is important, um, it still sold out on a lot of other components of our identity uh, to the point that, as I said earlier, you know, a teenager going to an Orthodox Jewish day school is still not really internalizing his people's story. It's still just kind of being miscontextualized as like his religion and not as his reality. And I think that the Orthodox denomination is no less guilty of that than the other denominations. I agree with that. Um, I mean, yeah, I, I don't have any, I don't know if I have any other insight to share on that. I certainly don't disagree. Um, and it's a, it's the challenge of course is that we live in a diaspora. I mean, we are, you're talking to a diaspora Jew who lives in a diaspora community. 
And I think the beauty of a diaspora community is that it affords a creative and a creative vitality, a, a pluralism that exists uh, and different ethical and moral Jewish questions that exist in diaspora that don't exist in Israel. So of course, some of the challenges of this are that our language is going to be more quote unquote colonized, right? Our language is going to be within the context of the communities in which we live. And we're going to syncretize and integrate aspects of the majority culture into our identity. Um, and that may be seen in a, in a negative light in some ways. And I think in other ways, it's a really positive light to have to struggle and seek creative answers to being Jewish in a non-Jewish majority. So for, for me, I'm, you know, I, I proudly live in, in exile in the diaspora. I have a strong, strong relationship with Israel. And, and I see there is a vitality and a, a creative energy that exists in diaspora Judaism that that may not be able to be found in Israel for, for demographic and tangible reasons. And I think that's why this conversation right here is so, so important. And what scares me is that diaspora Jews and Israeli Jews are falling out of conversation with one another and the lived experience is widening so much that it's becoming difficult to relate to one another. And I think that each of our communities has such unique advantages and authentic expressions of what it means to be Jewish and that we can together create a complementary, a complementary paradigm um, and that we're losing our capacity for that. Um, we're losing the capacity for my brothers and sisters in Israel to say, you know, you need to decolonize your language. You're not speaking the language of Jews. You're speaking the language of the community in which you exist. And, and I'm going to challenge you to excavate that a little bit more. Mm -hmm. um, and likewise, I think, you know, we also have our own contributions to, to our brothers and sisters in Israel. But I, I think everything you're saying here is really, uh, a really an example of the importance of these, this kind of dialogue. Addressing exactly what you just said, I, I think that is the conversation we Israelis need to be having with you diaspora Jews. Um, we shouldn't be pushing Aliyah, like meaning I don't think it's effective or productive to push Aliyah and shame you for not moving to Israel and being with us. Not because, you know, there shouldn't be shame, but I just don't think there really will be shame. I think that for a Jew who's psychologically living in the psychological paradigm of the American dream and Western civilization, it's a big ask to uproot your life and come live with us in the land of Israel and Middle East. But I, I think the more relevant question and the more constructive conversation is really, can you, as a diaspora Jew, begin to really try to deconstruct your worldview and reconstruct your worldview according to that of our ancestors. Meaning, are you capable as a diaspora Jew of living in the context of Jewish history, of looking at the world and issues and events through the prism of our people's values, our people's story, our people's experiences? Can you really start to like, or can you stop? relating to Jewish identity as it exists within the context of Western civilization today. Are those things possible for a diaspora Jew without necessarily committing to Aliyah? And for me, I, I think that answer is, is yes. I think that the majority of Jewish existence has been in diaspora. Um, there's Alan Wolf wrote this, this book in essentially in, de in defense of diaspora. It was at home in exile. 
why diaspora is good for the Jews. And it's a really provocative book. And he goes further than I would in this sort of idea of competing Zions, right? Trying to make the case that diaspora is perhaps more authentic, uh, you know, the, the more authentic Zion than our Zion from which we come, than Israel. And I, I don't believe in that sort of competing paradigm. I, I truly see them as complementary. Um, but but he makes many many valuable points, and I think others do as well. That the majority of Jewish existence has been in exile, in diaspora, um, and that that existence is also authentic and meaningful and Jewish. And the challenge, of course, is I think Solomon Schechter referred to Jews in you know in the 18th century in France and elsewhere as um, as slaves in the midst of freedom. And Rav Cook talked about the two kinds of exile, right? There's the inner exile. And of course, then there's the, the outer exile, the, the, that kind of exile. And I think the challenge for, for Jews in, in exile is that one can live authentically Jewish in geographic exile. But the challenge is to deal with that inner exile, that new Egypt that is in our subconscious, that is invading our Jewish consciousness. Um, you know, Rav Cook talked about that as, as sort of silencing the Jewish soul. Um, alien tongue, alien culture, alien thought structure, alien classes and schools and governing systems. And he says that we need to free ourselves from that inner exile. And I think the, the challenge is that that's of course hard to do in geographic exile, but the opportunity is that it's actually possible and if one can not be a slave you know a slave amidst freedom but can can decolonize themselves in your language right can free themselves from that inner exile in Ralph Cook's language I think it's possible and I think it creates a truly beautiful and unique and authentic form of Jewishness in diaspora and then that question is how do we do that and and that's perhaps not a reality that we reckon with um, or that we try to solve for and I think that it's the only way to actually do that is in conversation uh, with Jews in Israel, is, is to figure out what unique challenges and opportunities that we both have and to learn from one another. And, and truly one of my great fears in this division between the diaspora and Israel and the falling out of Zionism in Israel among a new generation of Jews in America is not just that Israel and Zionism will lose another generation of donors and supporters and advocates, but that the bond between Jews and Israel and diaspora Jews, that global bond will be broken and that diaspora Jews will look at Israel and say, not just if this is Zionism, I don't want a part of it, but if this is Judaism. Right, or Jewishness. Sure. <laughs> I don't want a part of it. There's no need to engage in this conversation about decolonizing my identity because that's not an identity I want to return to. Yeah, no, I, I think you're making some important points and, and we need to remember, like even, you know, speaking to the Emma Lazarus uh, poem you mentioned before, you know, in the wake of those pogroms in the 1880s that kind of drove a lot of Jews to flee Russia. I, I think it's, I mean, we have to deal with the reality that the Jews who went to Palestine were for the most part, uh, first of all, the minority and second of all, those Jews who are really looking for a collective solution for the Jewish people. Whereas the Jews who had gone to the United States were really, for the most part, looking for a solution for themselves and their children. And I think that's very much 
categorized the two communities over the last, you know, century, you know, century and change is that Israeli society, you know, the Jewish community in Palestine or now Israel was really created by those who were driven by Jewish history and driven by the idea of a national solution for our people. Whereas the American Jewish community was for the most part built by those who were looking for individual solutions, you know, solutions for me and my kids, me and my community, etc. Uh, so I think that does characterize uh, very much the difference between the Israeli mentality and the American Jewish mentality. And that can't be divorced from our conversation, meaning I think it is important for us to be able to say to diaspora Jews, we're not pushing you to move. We're not shaming you for being where you are. We're accepting of that. Like We're going to accept that you are where you are, but still like, how about reconnecting? How about, and you know, you mentioned before Kiruv. For me, Kiruv, you know, outreach might be a little bit broader than it is for some of the, like you mentioned, Eshet Torah, other organizations. There's two types of Kiruv, basically. There's Kiruv Rechokim, which I think is what Eish or Chabad or other organizations do. Like they see a Jew who is quote unquote, far away from his identity, far away from Torah, and they try to bring him close. And then there is what we call Kiruv Livavot. Uh, which is more, I guess, what I'm involved in. You know, when I meet a Jew uh, who may or may not be far away from his or her identity or Torah or the land of Israel or whatever, uh, I usually assume I have just as much to learn from them as they do from me. And uh, it's not that I am going to change him or fix him or make him more like me, uh, but it's that through our engagement, through our relationship, through our dialogue, we're both going to become more who we're supposed to be. And, and, and that's actually how I engage, you know, when I tour here, I speak a lot to left-wing Jewish groups, groups involved in BDS, Movement for Black Lives, etc. And often, you know, some of these Jews from, you know, JVP, or if not now, or any of these organizations, they, they ask, well, why do you speak to us? Like, why do you care to speak to us? And the answer I give is, well, first of all, I go through that whole piece of Orota Tchia that we went through earlier from Rav Kook about the three forces, you know, the, the nationalist, the Torah, and the universalist. And, uh, and I say to them, I have something to teach you, but I also feel you have something to teach me. That mm. There's something, and I, I hope you've also experienced that in our relationship, that just as much as I feel I have something to give you, I think you have something to give me. And that I benefit and that I grow through our relationship and through our interaction. And that is the beauty of our relationship. And, and I think why we, why we always come back to one another when, when I'm in Israel or you're in, you're in New York City, because there is that complementary relationship. And I, I want to push back on something you said. Sure. I'm not, of course, counterfactuals are, are very difficult and it's hard for me to get into the mind of someone fleeing a pogrom in the 1880s. Uh -huh. But from what I understand of Emma Lazarus, at least, I might push back on the idea that those who went to America were focused more on self-preservation versus those in Israel who were working more on a national project. I think Emma Lazarus would have actually defined herself as seeing a communal Jewish future in America as a crucial part of Jewish salvation and security. She really believed, and she believed in both side by side, that idea, right, that there were those two streams, one heading towards its ancient source and another with new heart. And she says, the truth is spread, the law unfurled by both, which contain the soul and the nation's force. She sort of understood that there was a need for reclaiming territorial autonomy, 
but that cosmopolitanism and an open-ended dialogue with other communities and the tension of assimilation and the self-compromising that's required is also an authentic and necessary component of the Jewish future. And I think that, that I, as a Jew in diaspora today, I see diaspora Jewry not as a, a sort of subordinate expression of Judaism or a backup to Jewish community or Jewish future. But I, I think that many Jews at the time may have also seen America as a unique opportunity in the history of, of the world, of nations, of Jews, where we could both have that collective return to a lost sovereignty in, in Israel, but that there was an opportunity here that had never been had before to create a safe and strong Jewish community um, outside of that organic center, right? In, in diaspora. And the, the question is, is America truly unique, right? Will America fall in the, in the, in the hands, you know, in, in the face of Jews as, as it has fall, as other nations where Jews have felt safe have fallen before? And I don't, I don't necessarily know the answer, of course, to that question. Um, but I, I think for many, many of the Jews fleeing then and many Jews today, that diaspora Jewry is also seen as a collective refuge and future for the Jewish people um, in, in the same kind of way we see Israel playing that role. Mm -hmm. uh, well, I'll push back on your pushback. Um, <laughs> first of all, I think, and this is not an attack on Emil Lazarus or on you, but I think that this I think that approach, it really is a, a bit ahistorical and certainly divorced from what our people have been telling ourselves for thousands of years. I think it's it, until the Haskalah, until the Enlightenment period, I think it was very clear to Jews in most of the world uh, that the goal is going back to our land and reclaiming our independence in order to fulfill our mission in history. And that that mission can only be achieved as uh, you know, what the Torah calls a mamlechet koanim v'goy kadosh, like a, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, like a, to create a, a society in the land of Israel that expresses the divine ideal in every sphere of human behavior. And I think it's only that vehicle, that society, that can really inspire the world and lead the world into a post-capitalist reality, which I think is so crucial today, especially given climate chaos and many of the challenges confronting human civilization today. And, and even our illusions of separateness. I think one of my primary issues with capitalism as a system and mode of production is that it really psychologically reinforces these illusions of separateness. Meaning if one of Israel's goals is to bring humanity to the awareness that we're really all one, that we're, we're really all united at the source and that it's impossible for one of us to succeed while pushing down someone else, then capitalism as a system is really a barrier to that awareness. And so th that has to go. Now, uh, another question we have to ask ourselves is, will the United States even exist in 30 years? I mean, it, I've been watching from outside, you know, even the last four or five years, you know, the Trump years, it really looks like this is a country ready to tear itself apart. And as we deal, you know, with climate chaos, 
as we deal with you know the failure of the capitalist system as we deal with a global pandemic as we deal with such a polarized american society i'm not sure that the united states is going to continue to exist in its current form you know 20 30 40 years into the future and i'm not sure what that's going to mean for jews and i think that uncertainty actually you know in a in a realpolitik way wants leads me to want to hedge my bets and say jews should be in different places i i could you know we could say that about babylon we could say that about jerusalem i don't know where they'll be in x amount of years so i i think in in terms of that there's a reason to not put all of our eggs in one basket per se um and i i think there's just a long history of Jewish life in Babylon and there's a dynamism a dynamism that comes from that tension that exists um and i even think that as we said for the first time in history Jews have power um right the Jewish state has power the Jews as a collective have to wrestle with questions of power i think what we're seeing in terms of some of the divides between diaspora jury and american Jews is that in israel you have Jews who have power collective power for the first time and in babylon in exile in diaspora you have jewish minorities who don't have that power who couldn't dream of having the power to discriminate or oppress or persecute in a collective way um and even if they did dream of it we could never i could never implement that as a diaspora jew in america so i i think there's a jewish ethic that comes from existence as a minority rather than a majority as someone that lacks institutional collective power versus someone who has it where we not only are hedging our bets in terms of the Jewish future and being geographically dispersed but we're able to check one another and and bring those experiences those fears uh those lived realities into the foray into the conversation to try to ensure that life Jewish life in Israel can improve can better as well as Jewish life in diaspora so i guess that might be the fundamental difference between us uh, that for me powerlessness is completely unacceptable what i want is for us to use our power justly and that's i think the crux of the problem for Israelis is we haven't had power in thousands of years we suddenly have it again we don't fully understand it we're not fully comfortable with it some of us want to overuse it some of us are afraid to touch it at all and for me the solution is not to idealize or romanticize a situation of vulnerability or powerlessness for me it's absolutely imperative that we have power but that we learn how to wield it justly and in such a way that actually advances our purpose advances our goals and leads the world to what we've always believed it should be and i i think that is the goal and i don't mean to glorify powerlessness um i don't think there's an ethic to lacking power right i think of course with power comes responsibility and opportunity and sacred obligations and one should never aspire toward powerlessness uh because there's less you know opportunity to do wrong um one should aspire toward power with ethic and responsibility um so i i don't mean to laud powerlessness and exile um and i don't even mean to say that i zachary shafer lack power 
Uh, I think I, in many ways, I, I do have power and privilege and access to power and resources as an individual and my community as well. So I don't feel like I live in a constant state of alienation or insecurity or helplessness, right? I, I don't feel like a object of, of reality. I, I really feel like a subject with agency. Um, but the kind of power that I have uh, in America is different than the kind of collective power a Jew has in a sovereign Jewish state. Um, and the decisions being made in America are not being made by Jews through a Jewish lens in the name of, of Judaism and Jewish power and Jewish survival and morals uh, in the same way it is in Israel. So I'm not sure how to sort of define the different dynamic of power that exists for a Jew in diaspora versus a Jew in Israel. And I think even the power I have as a Jew in Brooklyn in America you know, individual and collective is is very different than a Jew, perhaps in Paris or another diaspora community. Um, but I, I think the the way I experience power and or powerlessness is fundamentally different uh, than that for a Jew in Israel, and is a very important contribution to Jewish understanding and and conversations around what power means and how to wield it. Mm -hmm. Um, and maybe a question isn't that I lack power, it's just very simply the demographic reality of being a minority versus a majority. Okay, these are interesting questions to continue exploring. You know, this has been an incredible conversation, Zach. I, I thank you so much for joining me on the show. Yeah, this was, as always, I, I learned a lot. I took my own notes. I so appreciate speaking with you and the work you're doing for our people and, and for others. Uh, can you tell listeners where they can find you or any of your work? Yeah, my name is Zach Schaefer. Um, my website is ZacharyMSchaefer.com, M for Max. Uh, and you're welcome to you know go there, reach out to me uh, uh, there or any of my social media channels. All right, and we can uh, put a link in the show notes. Great. All right, Zach, thanks again. This is Yudaha Kohen, Vision Movement, Vision Magazine, and you're listening to the Next Stage Podcast. If you haven't already, please go subscribe to Vision Magazine on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, wherever you listen. And again, please leave us a rating and review because that can really help us get our message out to a much wider audience. And of course, if you're interested in sponsoring an episode of the Next Stage, please reach out by contacting us through visionmag.org just by clicking contact on the menu bar up top. Uh, you can check out the show notes by going to visionmag.org backslash the next stage, six fold.